0: Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 17, looking at verses 9 to 14. Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 to 14. And before we read that, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing. So please, if you'd bow your heads and join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for the Holy Scriptures, and we pray, Father, that our hearts will be made ready to receive these words for exactly what they are, the very words of God. May we be made humble and meek, faithful and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, Genesis chapter 17 verses 9 to 14 is the text we'll read from the start of Genesis chapter 17 through to verse 14. So starting at Genesis 17 verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So let's just quickly recap. God calls Abram from a foreign country. God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 15 and at verse 6, we're told that Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God establishes a covenant with Abram. Animals were cut in half and God himself passed between those animals, making promises to Abram that he would be Abram's God and that he would be the God of Abram's offspring. In Genesis chapter 17, we're now looking at uh, a period of time. It's at least 13 years later. It may well be more, probably 20 odd years later. Abram is 99 years old. He's had a period of testing. And in that period of testing, with, he he strayed. I won't say he fell, but he strayed. He, you could say he fell into sin. He strayed. He He attempted to bring offspring into the world through a concubine, through a slave girl. Her name was Hagar. He's now 99 years old. The child of that slave girl is 13. And God appears once more to Abram to remind him of, to reestablish the covenant, to establish the terms of the covenant and to speak to Abram concerning the future. He changes his name to Abraham and he makes promises. The I wills. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God continues to speak to Abram. In verse nine, we read, as for you. So the subject in a way has changed. Verses one to verses eight, God was speaking of what he would do. I will make you my man. You will walk before me. You will be blameless in my sight. I will make a covenant between me and you. I will do all of these things that I have promised. Now, God says to Abraham, as for you. And so here we find out that this covenantal relationship that is being established between God and Abraham has um, obligations on both God. God obligates himself. God obligates himself by his own word. And there are obligations on Abraham and on his offspring as for you you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations so abraham is here being established as the head of something okay what is our relationship to the lord jesus okay we can say he's our savior he's our king he's our elder brother he's our friend he's given all of these titles in the new testament he's our covenant head Our covenant with God is put in place for our benefit through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we call him our Lord, we're saying he is our covenantal king. To him we owe total allegiance. Abraham is here being established as the head of the covenant to the nation of Israel. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout Their generations. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. This is my covenant which you shall keep, verse 10 between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. In another place, Scripture calls this the sign of the covenant. The sign, the symbol, the sign of the covenant. You shall be circumcised. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Throughout your generations, the male shall be circumcised. The sign given to Abraham is called everlasting by virtue of it being a sign passed down throughout the generations of his descendants. God had said, this is an everlasting covenant and in verses ten and verse thirteen, God speaks of this covenant having, as you would, if you want to think of it this way, as an everlasting sign confirming the covenant. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Every, dropping down to verse twelve, every male throughout your generations. Dropping down to verse thirteen. Both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Every generation of the descendants of Abraham, the males are to be circumcised. And every male is to bear the sign of this covenant. Now we stop and ask the question, why would a sign be given that is only given to the males? Answer, every male is also in a manner of being the covenant head of his own household. And so the the children of a covenant head are counted as being one with that covenant head. In a manner of speaking, in covenantal terms, families get their identity through the father who is the head of that covenantal covenantal group that family is counted as one people one group look at how god speaks to abraham down at verse 13 so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant now abram himself is not going to live forever upon the earth he's going to come to death he's going to die yet god said that the covenant will be in his flesh, an everlasting covenant. Why would God say that? Because Abraham's offspring are being counted as the flesh of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham are being counted as an extension, if you want to think of it that way, in covenantal terms, of Abraham himself. Every male bears the sign of the covenant in order that every family be brought under the terms of the covenant. Even today, you know, go into your New Testament and how does Paul describe the family? Paul describes the man as being the head of his wife or the head of his family. He describes the wife as being the body of the man. He assigns authority to the man. But what I want you to consider as you consider this sign of the covenant, is that Abraham has been counted righteous by faith. We find that in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But the covenant sign is a work. Abraham is counted righteous by faith. By his faith, he has a saving relationship with his God. But the covenant sign is a work. And it's a work that cuts one either into or out of the Abrahamic covenant. When someone makes a covenant in the Bible, it's called cutting a covenant because blood is shed. This covenantal sign cuts a person either into or out of this Abrahamic covenant. It is a work. It's a work of obedience. It is a required work. That's important. Righteousness comes by faith. To be accounted righteous in the sight of God comes by faith. Abraham had faith. He believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. But this sign of the covenant that is given to every male in the Abrahamic family is not conferring Righteousness. I'll ask you a question. You're pretty well instructed in this question, so I know you know the answer. How is a person saved? Any person. A person is saved through faith in Christ. A person is saved through faith in the promises of God. Abraham believed the promises of God concerning Christ. He saw them far off. He believed them and God counted him as righteous. A person is not saved through any act of physical obedience. Except, of course, for the physical obedience of Jesus Christ himself. I tell you, you must be saved by faith and you can only be saved by faith, but I also tell you one other thing. You must be saved by works. You can only be saved by works. God requires works. We can't do the works. Those works have been done on our behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by works. He is the one who has done the works that God required. We're saved by faith. Faith in the completed and finished works of the Lord Jesus Christ done on our behalf. No man is saved by his own works and no man is saved by the works of another sinner we saved by the works of one who was without sin, perfect and holy. This covenant sign is a work and failure to do that work, looking at verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Failure to do that work is that which brings down condemnation. The work must be done. If the work is not done, a person is condemned. Concerning the infant males to whom the sign was administered, it was administered on the eighth day. Is there significance to this? And the answer is, yes, there is significance to this. Let's have a look at a few different things. I want you to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 22. Actually, I'm going to reverse the order of things that I'm doing here. I'm sorry. Let's first of all consider creation, God's act of creation given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth and mankind. On the seventh day, God rested. I ask you a question. What happened on the eighth day? The man started his work. On the eighth day, the man must have started his work, his works of obedience, the works of obedience that God required from him, the testing that God was to put him through. Six days, creation. Seventh day, rest. Eighth day, work, including testing. He was expected to persevere through testing. So the eighth day in creation, is significant. Now I want you to think about the crucifixion of our Lord. The scripture tells us that man was created on the sixth day and the one innocent and righteous and good man, the son of God, the one who is truly God and truly man, if we accept what is the, I'll call it the accepted church interpretation of the scriptures throughout throughout the last couple of thousand years, He was crucified on the sixth day, Friday at Easter. We have Good Friday. He was dead and in the tomb on the seventh day. He was resurrected on the eighth day to work. But his works are now the works of the son of God. He is now the high priest. He is now the king who rules at the right hand of God. He is now the Lord of all creation. The eighth day is a significant day. Now, Exodus chapter twenty-two in the law, given after this time. Verse twenty nine. We start reading in Exodus twenty two at verse twenty-nine. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The first born of your sons you shall give to me, you shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. On the eighth day, it becomes mine. On the eighth day, the firstborn is set aside. It becomes mine, says God. In Leviticus chapter 14, laws concerning the cleansing of lepers is the heading that's put there in my Bible. Let's just read from verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Then if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed, two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them, dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and let him, and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be cleaned. And after that he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and he shall be clean." And on the eighth day he shall take two male lambs without blemish and one new lamb a year old without blemish and a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed and these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And on it goes... But notice, it's on the eighth day that he makes offerings that are considered to be acceptable in the sight of God. It's on the eighth day that he resumes what you would call his normal worship. The eighth day has scriptural significance. I would suggest that the main significance comes actually from the Genesis account that I spoke of. In six days God created, on the seventh day God rested, on the eighth day man began his works. So what am I trying to sort of drive home to you here? Circumcision of the men was a work. It was a work. It was a commanded, expected, required work. This makes it law. It must be done. Do this and you shall live. If you do not do this, verse 14 of our passage, Genesis 17, 14, tells us that the one who is uncircumcised shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The sign itself did not signify that the one who received it was saved. It wasn't a saving sign. Any more than baptism does not regenerate a Christian. Passing through the waters does not make a person a Christian. People are saved through faith. Baptism is an act of obedience and it's a sanctified act of obedience that God requires of Christians. But it is not in and of itself a saving act or a saving work. Salvation is through faith. It did not signify that the one who was circumcised was saved. It only signified that the benefits of Abraham's federal headship in a covenantal relationship were being passed down. That's all that it signified. It signified that that person being descended from Abraham had a covenantal relationship with God, that God had promised He would be that person's God. That's not salvation. That person must be awakened or brought to faith to be a person who's saved. There was a penalty for disobedience. The covenantal sign was for Abraham a sign of faith. We read that in the book of Romans, at chapter 4. But its administration throughout the generations of Abraham was a work that did not give or confer salvation. Basically, Abraham's offspring were raised with access to the promises of God because God counted Abraham faithful. They had, if you want to think of it this way, they had the gospel in their nation, in their ethnic group, because God counted Abraham faithful. But that did not automatically confer upon them salvation. We'll look at a couple of verses of Scripture. Let's have a look at them. I just want to make sure that this is very clear. I want to make sure that you see that what I'm saying is in accordance with with how the scripture interprets itself. So let's look at Deuteronomy 10. We read it earlier, but we'll just look at verse 16. Moses preaching to Israel before they go into the promised land. He says to them, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He was speaking to a nation of people who had inherited the Abrahamic covenant And Moses does not command them to be circumcised in terms of that which is um, required of the male generations. He commands them to be circumcised in their heart. What would that look like? Well, it's there in Deuteronomy 10. If they're circumcised in heart, they would fear the Lord God. They would walk in his ways. They would serve him with all their heart and with all their souls. They would keep his commandments and statutes. Circumcise therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Be changed in your nature. Do not be what you were. Be what God requires of you. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, Moses continues teaching the people of Israel and he warns them that through their disobedience, they'll be taken away to a far country as slaves, then they may well be brought back again. Verse one. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Clear implication. There's a requirement. What's the requirement to be truly the people of God? It's not just that the males be circumcised. It's that the people of God be circumcised in the heart. Something be changed about their innermost person. That they not be what they were by, let's call it human nature, by fallen sinful nature. They are to be circumcised in heart. Turn to the book of Jeremiah. I know I'm sort of stressing this, but I have my reasons. Jeremiah, chapter 4. Jeremiah, preaching to the people of Israel or the people of Judah in their later days. They had sinned against the Lord. Judgment was coming. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. What is repentance said to be? The circumcision of the heart. The sign of circumcision had nothing to do with the actual salvation of the people. It was a sign that identified them as the offspring of Abraham. It identified them as being those who were the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. In Jeremiah, move on to Jeremiah chapter 9. The whole chapter is a warning. It's a warning to people who are lightweight in their religion. Who are only um, doing the very least of outward appearance, just enough to appear to appear to be the faithful people of God, and Jeremiah is saying to them, "This isn't this isn't right. This is not wise." We'll start reading at verse twenty-three, Jeremiah nine twenty-three. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, the he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh." Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. I know that I've stretched, I've really sort of tried to hammer this home hard. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was not a sign that conferred salvation upon those who were descended from Abraham. If they wished to be saved as Abraham was saved, they had to have the faith that Abraham had. They had to believe God and it would be counted to them as righteousness. And God would then cause those who believed to walk before him and to do according to his will. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses said God will then circumcise your hearts. He will take away the foreskin of your heart. He will soften. He will open your hearts. You see, all of these pictures of God dealing with the heart and what God requires of the heart, they're what the New Testament calls salvation. They're what Jesus called being born again in John chapter 3. They're what what is called regeneration. They're what is called the planting of the seed of the word of God in 1 John, the changing of the heart, the being born again by the power of the word of God from 1 Peter, being made a little child and having faith from the lips of Jesus himself in the Gospels, being regenerated, being made new, being made into a different person. Circumcision was nothing more than a work which spoke of, reminded people of the requirement that they be circumcised in the heart. It was a covenantal marker, it was a reminder, but in itself it was not saving. The New Testament also teaches us this. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 7. Now, this is Stephen's sermon, Stephen the martyr, preaching to the representatives of the people of Israel, preaching to the high priest and those gathered to hear it. He recounts Israel's history. He recounts the sins of the people. And then, in the end, he makes them really, really angry, so angry that they want to kill him. So let's pick it up at verse 47. At verse 47, Stephen has moved on in his recounting of the history of Israel to the building of the temple by Solomon. Verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now, here's where Stephen makes them angry. You stiff-necked people, which means stubborn, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. (laughs) And that's where they lost it. That's where they decided this guy has to die. Why? Because he just told us we're uncircumcised in heart. He just told us we're sinners. He just told us that we're no better off than the nations around about us. He just told us that, for example, the threats that we just read in the book of Jeremiah, they apply to us. He just called us uncircumcised in heart. Turn to Romans chapter 4. There we're going to read from verse 1. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. What's Paul arguing? Abraham was saved. Before he was given the sign of circumcision, Abraham was a saved man. Verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This made him the father of all who believe, who are not circumcised, without being circumcised, so that righteousness could be counted to them as well. And he is the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised. They're not just circumcised in the genitalia, the male genitalia. That's not what they're circumcised in, is it? What's Paul getting at here? The circumcision of the heart that Moses spoke of, that Jeremiah spoke of, that the Old Testament spoke of. He's the father of the uncircumcised who are saved through faith and he is the father of the circumcised who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, let's sort of... This, this is. I'm trying to bring this to something. I honestly am. And, and there's a reason why I've taken this long, slow, and you might feel pretty boring, sort of breakdown of circumcision in the scriptures. I would wish that I didn't have to go where I'm about to go, but I feel that I have to. You see, we're not reformed pedo-baptists we're not reformed people who baptize infants we don't do it that way here we're reformed baptists we baptize confessing believers would i baptize a child yes if that child could convince me that that child had faith how young i don't know i wouldn't put an age limit on it But that child would have to be able to speak to me reasonably of their conviction of sin, of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the security that they have through having received the Holy Spirit. I'm not expecting them to use such technical terms, but I'm expecting them to have saving faith or at least be able to convince me that they had saving faith. But I would not baptise an infant eight days old, one week old, two weeks old, one month old. I would not do that. I do not believe that scripture commands that. And when our Peter baptist brethren, faithful Presbyterians, faithful Dutch Reformed, whom I consider to be Christians, I, I don't sort of push them out and say these people are not faithful and I don't think that they're faithful. That's not what I'm trying to say. But when they argue as to the basis of why they baptise infants, Genesis chapter 17 is one of the places they will go and they will speak of the fact that the sign of Abraham's covenant relationship to God was given to Abraham and his children and that it was administered to eight-day-old babies. All right, I grant you this is the case. That is correct. Why argue with Scripture? It's true. But I have made it very clear The sign that was given to the offspring of Abraham was not a sign of salvation. It was a sign of required obedience, the obedience of faith. It pointed to the necessity of being circumcised in the heart, being changed, being altered, being made a different person through faith. It was not a saving sign. The next place that... People go as they argue in favor of baptizing infants, is usually not always, but usually they go through the book of Acts and chapter 2. So let's go to the book of Acts and chapter 2. They go to Peter's first sermon. And at verse 39, let's, let's read from verse 37. And first of all, I'll set the scene. The scene is this. Peter has preached to the gathered faithful, the people who have come to Jerusalem. Peter has preached to them. And he's basically told them, you're guilty. You've killed God's Messiah. You've killed the son of God. And all the curses that you can expect from the scriptures go right back from Genesis. We would say from Genesis to Malachi, all the judgments of God They're coming to you. You killed Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is truly God and truly man. Now, put yourself in that situation. You're there. You're hearing Peter preach and you're convicted. You're you're, you're already a believer in the Old Testament and now you're convicted. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of murdering the Messiah. I put the Saviour, to death. The judgments of God, they will rightly fall upon me and as a Jew, rightly fall upon my family because I'm of the offspring of Abraham and I bear the sign of the covenant of Abraham and I'm the male who's at the head of his family. I have no hope. If I'm guilty, I have no hope. I'm finished. I've killed the Saviour God sent. I haven't just rejected a prophet. I've actually killed the Son of God. I have no hope and my family will die with me. That's the way a faithful, believing Jew would be thinking under this sermon, under the conviction of sin. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? The curses of God, I can feel them. They're just over my head. <laughs> the weight of judgment, it's going to crush me. It'll crush my family. What can we do? What shall we do? Peter says to them, verse 38, repent And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. So hear this. You killed Jesus Messiah. But repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Messiah. The one you killed. You killed Jesus Messiah. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will be circumcised in heart. You will be changed. You will be circumcised in heart. You won't now just be the bearers of the outward sign. God will do a work within you and you will be inwardly changed. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're the Jew. You're there under the conviction of sin, the weight of God's judgment. It's like a million tons hanging over your head. Peter says, this need not destroy you. Repent. Repent and be baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven and you will be saved. Repent and be baptised. The weight of God's judgement need not fall upon you. And then Peter goes on to say, now here's where, and yeah, and here's the Presbyterian argument. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There it is. You and your children. They say you and your children. And God's promises to Abraham were for he and his children. And the sign of that promise, that covenantal promise, was administered on the eighth day to babies. There it is. It says the promise is for you and your children. It does say that. But what's Peter saying concerning their offspring? I mean, think about, think carefully now about the structure of what's being said here. What's the promise? The promise is repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. Now, who can hear the promise? First of all, Peter says to those who are before him under the conviction of the weight of sin, cont- you know, feeling that God's judgments were like a million ton hanging over their head. The promise is for you. You can be forgiven. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But you being a Jew are worried about your family. The promise is for your children. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So the promise is for you. It's for your children. The covenantal curses need not fall upon your children. But what's the condition of the promise? You know that and, and. And for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Connection, connection, connection. In a sentence like that, the conditions that apply to the first group spoken of, must therefore apply to every other. Does that make sense? So what is required of the children of the Jews? Repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What about those who are far off? Jesus spoke of having sheep who were not of this fold and them also he must gather. John chapter 10, those who are far off. What's the promise to those who are far off as the gospel is preached to them? Repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Look at the word calls. Look at the word calls. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That is connected to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The called. The promise was to the called. The condition of the promise was repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the, forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise was to those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who's going to repent? Who's going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? If they're not called, they're not going to repent. They're not going to receive the gift, only the called. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I'm now going to make one, one little argument, one, one last argument concerning the interpretation of those two verses. And here it is, it's, it's reductio, I can't even remember the phrase, but I'm taking it to absurdity. I'm taking the logic of what I disagree with to its absurdity. Here's the absurdity, okay? And look, <laughs> I love my Presbyterian brethren. I love their faithfulness. Our, our 1689 London Baptist Confession takes whole chapters, just simply cut and paste and brought straight across. But here's the absurdity, okay? If you take this as meaning that the promise of baptism is for you and for your children, well, then you must also take this grammatically as meaning that the promise of baptism is for everyone, everyone. You have to take it all the away. If that's the way you're reading it concerning those people and their children, it's also the same for all who are far off. So, you know, we read in history, church history, some crazy things happened at times. And you have a king say, I'm a Christian and all my people are a Christian, what can we do? And some representative of the church says, we'll get all your men to march through the river and we'll pronounce them baptised as they go through the water. We think that's ridiculous. Do you think that's ridiculous? I think that's ridiculous. If all these men were formerly pagans and they're just marching through the river and some kind of priest or monk or whatever is standing on the riverbank saying, I baptise you in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Madness. You know they're not changed. You know they haven't been, to use the phrase that we've used this morning, circumcised in the heart. It's just an outward act. And then you just pronounce them all baptised and wait and see who actually has faith, comes to faith. Or in the modern day, maybe you could get an auditorium full of people and you could turn on the sprinklers and pronounce them baptised and then preach the gospel and see who comes to faith. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. But that is the ultimate logical stopping place, termination of the thought if you try to use Acts chapter two verse 39, as justification for baptising infants. You end up basically having permission to baptise anyone under any circumstances, hoping that eventually, somehow or other, they'll become Christians. And that's where I respectfully submit that, for example, the Westminster Confession is, is actually not quite right because it says only the, only the children of the believers should be baptised. My friends, if you're using that passage, it's saying anyone can be baptised. doesn't matter. Just get some water on them. Say the saying and it's done. So the question, because it's thrown straight back in my face if ever I make these arguments, but all the covenantal relationships in the Bible were always... To the children, the covenant head, and to the children. Always. And I agree. I completely and 100% agree. But here's the thing in the New Covenant, the children are the children by faith. And the Old Testament teaches this, and the New Testament interprets it in that way. I want you to turn, for example, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54. (laughs) Reading from verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now, who is the one who is married? Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34 speaks of God's old covenant relationship with Israel as as a relationship of marriage. Even though I was their husband, says the Lord, they broke my covenant. The children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. I want you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 21. The book of Galatian, Paul writing to a basically Gentile church who, which had come under false teaching concerning salvation by faith as against salvation by works. Teachers had come to them telling them that the way into Jesus is through the Jewish nation. You have to be circumcised like Abraham was circumcised. You have to go through the old covenant to get into the new covenant. And Galatians is basically a passionate six-chapter argument against that teaching. And now he's saying to the people of Galatia, at verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Here's Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. How's Paul using the verse? How's Paul interpreting Isaiah? Paul is saying that the children that God has promised are the people who are filling the church the people who are filling the new covenant church the people who are in Christ the people who are saved by grace through faith in Christ these are the children i could go to a number of other places i don't know how long i've been going and getting long we won't i just want you to understand the promise of the old testament is that under the new covenant the children will be those who believe We're counted as sons of the living God, we're told in Romans chapter 8. We're counted as having been adopted into the family of God, we're told. Sons and heirs of God himself. Let's go to one more passage and then I'll try and close this up. I want you to go to the book of Colossians. We read it earlier, chapter 2. Now, this is the passage that actually connects baptism and circumcision and so once again those who argue for infant baptism often go to Colossians chapter 2 but in my experience they kind of basically brush through it they kind of just say look here it is here's the connection here's where we see that baptism now is what circumcision was but I would suggest that if we read it closely and carefully we'll see that it is not Colossians chapter 2, we read from verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So... This circumcision is done without hands. We could say it was done by hands in a way. Or maybe we could say it was done by the finger of God. Do you get what I'm saying? The finger of God in the Old Testament is a metaphor for the work of God's Holy Spirit. This circumcision, it's not done by human hands. It's done by God's hands. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Now, stop. We need to think carefully here about context, really carefully about context. Where Paul uses the phrase, the circumcision of Christ, what is he speaking of? Is he speaking of Jesus being taken to the temple on the eighth day etc cetera, etc cetera, the fulfillment of the law? The context tells us no he is not. He's speaking of the death of Jesus. In which you were raised with him sorry by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what Paul is calling the circumcision of Jesus is actually the crucifixion of Jesus. And Paul is saying that we who are baptised into Christ are baptised in that same circumcision counted as dead, brought back to life. Hearts changed, hearts circumcised by a circumcision made without hands. Not an outward sign, an inward work of God the Holy Spirit. And it says that it happened through faith. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's talk a bit about baptism. Baptism, the plain and simple meaning of the word is immersion. Now, I haven't argued about how much water should be used in a baptism. That to me comes after you settle the argument of who should be baptised. It comes after I'm not, I'm not arguing about the amount of water. I'm arguing about who should be baptised. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Let's talk about baptism. In, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaks of being baptised into the life, the death and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the immersion... There is the inclusion, there is the baptism that comes by faith. Our identity, when we come to saving faith in Christ, is made one with Christ. We are in him. We are clothed in his righteousness. Just about the most common description that you'll find of Christians in the New Testament is people who are in Christ. Our faith is the means by which we are baptised into Christ, but our baptism is the outward sign of the faith that is present. Our baptism is the outward sign of the faith that is present. And just as when, for example, we take the communion meal, we teach about the presence of Christ, we're not saying that the elements change, they are elements. Bread remains bread, wine remains wine. But we're saying that when we take communion, Christ is truly present. When we are baptised in faith, Christ is truly present in just the same way. The water's not magic, the baptism's not magic, but the faith, the faith that saves is confirmed, strengthened. It is built up in and through the baptism I know Joel's dad hates the word. If he listens to this sermon, he'll probably ring me and tell me he hates the word. It's called a sacrament in many places. A promise with an oath. He says, what are you, Scott, a Roman Catholic? You're talking about sacraments. Understood rightly, the word's okay, would be my reply. And he's heard that too. Christ is present in our baptism. Why? Why? Because our baptism is a work of faith. It's a sign of faith. It's a sign of having received the spiritual baptism of having been absorbed into Christ. If you want to use the word absorbed, it's probably not a good word. Hidden in Christ, made one with Christ. Remember, I spoke of how the man at the head of a covenant, his family was considered to be his flesh God speaks of, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. For that to make any sense, God is saying that the offspring of Abraham are to be considered to be the flesh of Abraham. And so the covenant is everlasting as long as there is the flesh of Abraham being circumcised. But now, my friends, we have a sign that is given to all, man, woman, boy, girl, whoever has faith. This sign is for all who believe, who are called. Who are called. The effectual call. That call of God, the Holy Spirit. That call to faith and repentance. That call to a new life. That call to obedience. That call to eternal life. That call that cannot be denied. Irresistible grace. The person might fight it. But in the end, they lose. When God has set his heart upon someone and calls someone to life, they will come. And they will be saved. My friends, in a manner of speaking, we share the faith of Abraham. Scripture says he's the father of all the faithful because so much was revealed through Abraham in his covenantal relationship with God. And he's spoken of as a friend of God. But never forget. It's Abraham who is our example, not his offspring. Abraham is our example, not his offspring. And we read in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, and I'll just turn back to it to make sure I read it correctly rather than relying on memory. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see, Abraham's our example, not his offspring. So, my friends, I'm trying now to land the plane, trying to get this back down. It's really simple. In the end, it's really simple. Outward signs, outward obedience that does not come from the heart counts for absolutely nothing, and it never has counted for anything. In terms of eternal life, In terms of being saved, in terms of living forever with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, a circumcised heart is that which is required. A heart upon which is written the law of God. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Remember, it was Jeremiah. We looked at two places in Jeremiah where he told the people that the problem was they had an outward circumcision, not an inward circumcision that their hearts were not right. Now Jeremiah gives the solution. This is God's gospel preached by Jeremiah. This is applied, by the way, to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians. Just so you know that this is applied to the church. Verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, And they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his each his brother saying, "Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Notice what God says. I will play with the human heart. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And these people. These people are the offspring of God's promises. These people are the offspring being drawn into that tent that we read about from the book of Isaiah that was to be expanded and spread throughout all the earth. The tent that was to refill the nations, populate the nations. These people on whom heart is written, the law of God. These people, in terms of using circumcision phraseology, have a circumcised heart. So my friends... I tell you, the promises that Peter gave to the people, they are still active today. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptised in his name, seeking the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures. And I pray, Father, if I have spoken amiss, if I have gone wrong, that these words would be forgotten and blown away like chaff in the wind. Father, I pray that you would confirm to us by the power of your Holy Spirit the truth of the word that has been spoken. Forgive me my failures. Forgive me my weaknesses. Father, may we live on with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, enjoying the fellowship and the unity of the Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.